I am looking at a book right now called Man's Search for Meaning. It's in my hands by Victor E. Frankel. It's 2016. I have just returned home to Tennessee. I'm in my third and most extreme sense of depersonalization, panic, and dare I say, even a little depressed. So I've returned home to Tennessee from Los Angeles, and I go to a counselor my dad recommends. His name is Mark. I go in to talk to Mark, and Mark says, yes, I do EMDR. And I said, well, you know, here's the deal. I've had a lot of counseling. And I'm, I need help. And right now, my depersonalization, my panic, and I even have some sense of depression. It's worse than it's ever been. He says, well, Wes, EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. If you've been through a trauma, this is a technique. And I'm going to just tell you as best as I recall. And I've looked at it a little bit in school counseling after this where we engage the amygdala through a technique that allows you to re-engage with that trauma and therefore move through it. Some traumas are so extreme that you can't even revisit it. And, and as I looked a little more about this technique, it seemed to be effective mainly for people who had been through a really traumatic experience. Maybe a soldier who has PTSD, a police officer who's walked up on this really challenging scene. Maybe even, I'm thinking about uh, people being abused sexually, uh, physically. These, these are extreme. And so I decided after a little research, I'm not interested in EMDR. And, and if you're curious what that is, you can do it simply by taking a finger and waving it back and forth. Sometimes there are little clips that go on the end of your fingers and they vibrate. And something about the stimulation uh, on both sides of the body allows the engagement of both lobes of the brain, targets the amygdala, this this uh, emotional aspect of our brain, and can be very helpful. Okay, So I didn't go back. But before I left that first meeting with Mark, he says, you know, it sounds as if you're in a transition phase in your life, right? You're moving out of attempting to be a performer in Los Angeles. Here you are back home. You're starting a new direction. Maybe you might be interested in this book. And he hands me the book I'm, I'm holding right now called Man's Search for Meaning. And I said, oh, cool. Can I, you're, you're giving this to me? He says, no, I'm, you can borrow it. When you're done, bring it back. I'm realizing right now I never return the book. So after this meeting today, I will drive back over there. It's been, what, four plus years, and I will drop it off. I may or may not attach my name to it, but that's not, uh, that's not good mojo to just, not good energy just to hang on to that. I'm not, I'm not a person who borrows tools and keeps them. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so t- here's the deal. Victor... Frankel's work is logotherapy. That's one of his, his, his type of therapy, and it's all about meaning. I am looking at Amazon right now. This book has 11,827 reviews, and it has four and a half stars. The reviews are amazing. My hope is that for those of us with DPDR, with anxiety, with some sort of depression or sadness, that we we can learn and steal from the great Victor Frankl. Would you like to hear him? I've got him queued up. Victor. Lesson one could learn in Auschwitz and in other concentration camps in the final analysis was those who were oriented toward a meaning, toward a meaning to be fulfilled by them in the future were most likely to survive. And this has been confirmed afterwards by American Navy and Army psychiatrists in Japanese prison of war camps, in 
North Korean prisoner of war. Did you catch that? The people who were able to survive the concentration camps were those who were oriented toward meaning. I'm curious, do you feel right now that you have meaning in your life, that you have purpose? I know for me, with acting, I felt like I had it, but then the world wasn't very interested. And uh, so I thought, maybe that's not the meaning or purpose for my life. But he talks about that. So I'm, I'm going to start with this. I'm going to start with his biography through Biographics, the website biographics.org. And it gets a little technical. I, I know that some of you may be here listening just because you want that next that that next piece to add to the puzzle for depersonalization or anxiety. And well, guess what? It's meaning. I'm going to tell you right now, but we're going to go through some of his life that may help put it all in context and then get to why he says what he says. So it's worth kind of wading through this some of the story, which can get a little bit technical in in order to to get to the the takeaway from his experience. And then I'm gonna I've got on Amazon and somewhere else queued up some of the some of the takeaways from the book that will come a little bit more toward the end. Some of the, the famous quotes, the takeaways, the the things that we can apply right now. Okay, without further ado, Victor Frankel. So he was put through some of the most horrific struggles a human being could imagine. He never lost hope, though, and he would use his experiences to continue his work helping other people find meaning in their lives. That's what Frankel does. His purpose is to help other people find their purpose. His story is one of strength, of hope, of a man who made an impact on the world. That's why we're talking about him. 1905, he is born. Middle child, Jewish family in Vienna. His parents, government employees, comfortable life. And then World War I hits. And so like many other families at that time, they, the Frankels had to deal with poverty. His siblings even had to go farm to farm begging for food as the war progressed. Could you imagine, by the way, growing up during that time, if you know, oh, I'm going to face World War I, and I'm going to be right in the middle of it, and then I'll be right there in World War II as well. So Frankel's one of those kids, though. He knew what was up, I mean, immediately. At the, as a young child, he already shows an interest and aptitude in the medical profession. Three years old, he declares he wants to be a doctor. He knows it. Four, he has this existential realization that every human being has at one point. One day, he realizes at four years old, I will die. Frankel gets it. I remember going through that more in seventh or eighth grade where I said to myself, okay, Wes, doesn't matter if you believe in the higher power you could be kidnapped you could be killed so I realized I am not safe and it hit me and I also realized oh something could happen to a parent a family member could die I could die and I remember thinking my my parents would be devastated if that happened and it wouldn't be till much later in life where I actually got the tools to deal with this in any case he's four He's just, sorry for that, he's just one of those guys. Just comes to him really early. So his life, three years old, is starting to take shape. Fast forward to high school. He is studying psychology and philosophy. He gives a speech in 1921. He's a sophomore in high school called On the Meaning of Life. What the heck? I mean, he's, he's, he's not two years before his graduation. Then... When he graduates, he writes a final paper, and it's about psychology of philosophical thought. 20 years old, he does something really interesting. He gets in touch with Dr. Sigmund Freud. This is the father of psychology, I believe. So he reaches out to Sigmund Freud with a letter, and he includes his graduation paper. Guess what? Sigmund Freud writes back, and he says, hey, Victor, will you allow me to publish this paper for you? 
Can you believe that? That's incredible. Frankel, years later, way, way down the line, says, I couldn't believe he wrote me back. That was incredible. Still had that, that appreciation. Could you imagine? I mean, you're 16 years old and you hear back from, and in, in all you want to do is be a basketball player, and then you hear back from LeBron James, you know, that kind of thing. Like Victor Frankel, that was, that, that was the, the tops for him. So three years go by. It's actually interesting. After that correspondence, Frankel is walking in a park in Vienna. He sees the man who looks familiar. He goes up to him and says, excuse me, sir, are you Sigmund Freud? Yes, he was. So Frankel <laughs> introduces himself. And Freud reads back Frankel's address. He says, oh, I know you. I know where you live. You live at dot, dot, dot. Freud, like whatever Frankel had written at that time, had impressed this this famous Freud, and he remembered him. He remembered his address and the work. That's a, that's a that's what we call a good start in life. Okay, stepping out, Wes here. Listen, if any of you are doing that garbage compare, like look at Victor Frankel. He had it together, you know, his whole life. You know something? I've seen those people in life who they meet their spouse in second grade or in high school. They find their career when they're three or in high school. For me, I feel like I've started to hit the flow in my 30s. I found I got married in my 30s. I went back to school to become a counselor in my 30s. I did an abrupt shift after a massive failure in my 20s. Okay, I've also seen people in their 50s, in their 60s. It, it is never too late. It is never too late to find... Uh, that that path for those of us who feel like we're like not not quite hit it just yet, um, and we get to pick, we get to create that meaning. I believe. Speaking of meaning, I think we get to pick. I I I make a decision to pick that um, I will be committed and love my wife every day. I make a decision and pick that uh, I, I have picked counseling, school counseling and that I'm interested in helping others with anxiety. I, I picked it. Nobody came knocking on my door asking me to do this. Okay, moving on. So uh, Frankel, he's, he's doing his thing. Uh, some of the article here just kind of speaks to the fact that he's a leader. He's a president of the Young Socialist Workers as a teen. He has... Um, he's got all these accomplishments, so he goes to the University of Vienna in college to formally study fields of neurology and psychiatrist, psychiatric, okay, that's a hard word, psychiatry. And initially, he based his studies in the theories of Sigmund Freud. How about that? Can you imagine? Oh, I'm going to study this guy who I've met before. Over time, though, he began to kind of find his own way. There's another guy named Adler, Adlerian theory, and... Uh, so he moves more toward the- Adler's ideas. And, um, okay, who are these guys? So Freud developed psychoanalysis. Adler added to that with the development of the inferiority complex. And Frankel would become the third of these giants in psychology in Vienna as he developed a search for meaning called logotherapy. I think logos means meaning as part of the study of the human psyche. Psychoanalysis, if I recall, is um, taking how we show up today and looking to a past event to potentially find out why we view the world in this way. For example, if I'm terrified of cats, you may go back to when I was a child and the cat attacked me. You know what I'm saying? That's a trauma. All right. (laughs) So before... Frankel becomes a world-renowned psychiatrist. He also had, again, more accolades. This was very interesting. Um, as a student, he began actively putting into practice what he was learning and the theory, theories he was developing. Move beyond, moving beyond just the academic side of things, he was literally able to save lives. This is interesting. He's a medical student. And he notices a trend in students in Austrian high schools. At the end of the semester, when grades are, or term rather, when grades are reported, 
there becomes a spike in suicides. Okay, crazy. So I'm stepping out here, Wes, here. So I, I'm guessing someone gets a low grade and they go, oh my goodness, it's all over for me and kill themselves. Or maybe that was the one thing that pushes them over. What does Frankel do? He spearheads an initiative to provide free counseling to students with an emphasis on helping them at the end of the school term. Incredibly, that first year, um, the first year that Frankel's program was implemented was the first time in recent history that there were no student suicides in Vienna. He is now proven in suicide prevention. He moves on to become the head of Vienna Psychiatric Hospital female suicide prevention program. 33 to 37, he works with thousands of women who were in danger of committing suicide. Okay, 37, he says, you know what? It's time to open my own practice. He gets started, and you would think, hey, the sky is the limit for this guy. Guess what? World War I comes, or World, <laughs> World War II. He's already been through World War I, where he had to go and beg for, for food. Now World War II comes. Okay, 1938, Germany invades Austria. Frankel is Jewish, and under the Nazi regime, he was not treated, he was not permitted, I'm sorry, words are hard yet again. He couldn't permit, he couldn't treat Aryan patients. Do I understand that correctly? So Germany invades Austria, and they say, listen, you don't get to treat Aryan patients, okay, because he's Jewish. Got it. There is a hospital called the Rothschild Hospital. It's in Vienna, and it is the only place where Jewish patients could be treated. So Frankel was called upon to use his talents there as the head of the neurological department. So it's getting rough. He's at Rothschild. He's also waiting to hear the news that could lift him out of this terrifying situation that so many European Jews were in. He applies for a visa to go to the United States, to get out of there. And all he needs to do this is it's starting to get bad. He just needs his lottery number to be called. Please, guess what? He is a lucky one. His lottery number came up before Pearl Harbor and the United States' entrance into the war. But his decision to leave Austria was not easy. Okay, The visa it turns out, only applied to Frankel and not any of the other members of his family. His parents and his siblings would be left behind in an even scarier environment. And Frankel knew their fate was likely to end in a concentration camp. So he knows. He says to himself, I have to make a choice. And he opted to depend on a higher power than himself to guide him in the right direction. He comes on, uh, a, a, comes across a fragment of stone in his parents' house, and he knew he had found an answer he was looking for. This stone wasn't just any stone. It was a piece of the Ten Commandments that had once stood in a local synagogue. It was burned down by the Nazis, and the synagogue was reduced to rubble, and Frankel's father had picked up this piece of stone for the family. And the piece he just happened to pick up, it depicted the portion of the commandment, honor thy father and mother. So Frankel's trying to make a decision. He finds this stone. It says, honor mom and dad. And that meant to Frankel, hey, it is very clear. You don't get to just bolt and leave your family here. You must stay in Austria with your family and be right alongside them as they dealt with whatever horrors faced them through the Nazi regime. Frankel knew what the Nazis were capable of. He and his wife, Tilly, T-I-L-L-Y. They were married in 1941, and the two of them wanted to have kids. But, listen to this, Jewish couples were not allowed to have children. Frankel's wife conceived, but she was not allowed to give birth, and she was forced to have an abortion. Okay, pause. Okay, I've kind of skimmed through this article, and I read that, and it just goes right on to the next section, but I couldn't imagine. I mean, that alone. You're forced to have an abortion. This is crazy. Okay, 1942. 
what Frankel feared would happen came true. He, his wife, his parents are arrested. And they're initially sent to a camp, a camp in, I can't say it, uh, Theresienstadt. This is a camp in Czechoslovakia. It happens. They're arrested. Man. Okay, so Frankel did what he could to help the others. He's in this concentration camp, this camp, and he's running a clinic. I don't get it. He's helping new prisoners cope with the drastic shock of entry into the camp. He establishes a suicide watch. Okay, Frankel, his wife, and his mom, they all survive Theresienstadt, but his father did not. He died after six months in camp. Okay, 1944, Frankel is ordered to go to, we all know, Auschwitz. His mother was ordered to go, but his wife was not. Tilly said, listen, <laughs> I, can't, I can't be away from my husband. I'm going. So she volunteers to go to Auschwitz with, with them. And you know, I'm thinking about this. It makes sense too. I would rather be with family. You know what I mean? I probably would rather be with family. I, I don't know. The two, though, get to Auschwitz and they're on separate ends. After arriving, Tilly was moved on to Bergen-Belsen while Frankel and his mother were both kept at Auschwitz. Here's, here's a little bit of Auschwitz. So at first, they, 1,500 others, are kept in this shed. And it's meant to hold like 300 people, you know. But ground is bare. Prisoners forced to squat for days. They were only given little bitty pieces of bread. I mean, it's it. You know what it is. You, it's it's horrific. Okay, one day they're directed into two lines. I've heard this too. Okay, one of the lines is the gas chamber. One and the other one is years of labor and misery, but survival at least initially. Franco's mom is in that line that goes straight to the gas chambers, and she dies. She's executed. Frankel himself sees, barely escapes this fate. So he's ordered to get in the left line. And I'm guessing, and I feel like in the book, he knows, or he's got to, I can't remember. He defies the order. He steps when in with the other group. Hmm. It says, only as he only discovered later the left line, uh, towards the gas chamber and certain death. I think he knew that, though. I don't know. So he gets in the other side, and he lives. He was, okay, 1.3 million people were sent through the gates of Auschwitz. 1.1 million died. He's one of those few. He survives. Those who didn't die right away in the gas chamber suffered through deaths, those were caused by starvation, disease, exhaustion from forced labor, even medical experiments, we've heard of those. Many other people suffered in other camps, Auschwitz just one of the most famous, and Frankel's wife at the, another camp also met her fate in, uh, in this camp, and she died as well. Tilly, his wife, perished at the hands of the Nazis at the camp known, as we mentioned, Bergen-Belsen. And Frankel didn't learn she had even died until after he was liberated in 1945. <sighs> okay. So, throughout his time suffering in the camps, he didn't know Tilly's fate. He was able to find meaning and a level of comfort in the knowledge of love. He thought of her throughout his ordeal in the concentration camps and recognizing how that helped him. He started to theorize about what love meant for human life. He later set out his, his thinking this way in his famous work, Man's Search for Meaning. I'm hearing here, uh, to the author of this biography here, I'm hearing that something about the, the peace of love, the, 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 the love propelled him forward. And I'm, I'm already guessing that even 
for a person who may not have that person that they have to develop a love and, and make that choice for something or somebody. Okay, here he goes. And this is a quote from Frankel. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which many can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. Through love and in love. Okay, we'll, we'll see what that means uh, a little later to kind of apply it. When Frankel was in the concentration camps, he had to distract himself from the reality of what he was going through. He saw death and suffering up close. He was forced into cattle cars, forced to march. He got typhoid fever, separated from his family members. So what was one way he pushed himself forward to survive? He explains it. He says, I repeatedly tried to distance myself from the misery that surrounded me by externalizing it. I remember marching one morning from the camp to the work site, hardly able to bear the hunger, the cold, the pain of my frozen and festering feet, so swollen. Situation seemed bleak for me. It really seemed hopeless. Then I imagined that I stood at a lectern in a large beautiful, warm, bright hall. I was about to give a lecture to an interested audience on psychotherapeutic experiences in a concentration camp. This is the title I actually used later. In the imaginary lecture, I reported the things I am now living through. Believe me, ladies and gentlemen, at that moment, I could not dare to hope that someday it was to be my good fortune to actually give such a lecture. Okay, so Frankel, it's the vision work, right? Did you all did you get that as well? So in that hopeless moment to create a vision that is an exciting and for him the vision was I'm giving a lecture about therapeutic practices and in a concentration and that that got him out of that misery. It distracted him and it gave him hope. Okay. Frankel also made a point of finding a lesson in goodness and survival and the suffering he endured and the suffering he witnessed. The themes informed his life work. This is the famous quote, if you haven't heard it. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. (sighs) Moving forward, post-World War II, 1945, Frankel had a welcome sight. American soldiers come to liberate the concentration camps, meaning Frankel is now a free man. No family left, except there was a sister who had escaped to Australia. He was essentially starting new in the world, but he had his ideas, his education, and his professional experience. So he puts his ideas into writing. In only nine days during the summer of 1945, Frankel didacted a full manuscript. Didacted. What does that mean? I'm going to have to look that up again. I can never remember that word. So in these nine days in the summer of 45, he writes Man's Search for Meaning, a description of what life was like in the concentration camps and the coinciding realizations Frankel had during his time as a prisoner about the need for meaning in human life and the role of suffering in the world. The book served as the basic outline for logotherapy, the idea posited by Frankel that men are most driven by a search for meaning. Wes here, hey, it's true for me. 
meaning meaning is real i am driven by search for meaning i have to i have to find meaning in something i have to have that motivation 1946 he was fully back in the professional world he's running the vienna polyclinic of neurology 1948 he's still learning he now has his phd in philosophy he began teaching at the university of vienna and he would remain as a professor until 1990 wow so okay hold on so it's like 45 when he's liberated and it's a few years after that 48 to 90 50 67 80 90 40 plus years he's at the university of vienna as a professor that's incredible <clears throat> jumping back after he is released from the concentration camp he remarries 1947 the beautiful Eleanor Schwint they had a daughter together and as an adult his daughter would follow in her famous father's footsteps and the daughter becomes a uh, a child psychiatrist though Frankel was teaching at the University of Vienna his teachings began to make an impact worldwide we talked about it Freud and Adler were his predecessors Vienna had already established itself as a center for psychological and psychiatric study. Freud and Adler were the first and second schools of Viennese psychotherapy, and Frankel's ideas about man needing meaning became the third. 1950s, he is invited to speak at universities around the world. He had also by the way, created the Austrian Medical Society for Psychotherapy. He headed up the organization. These are a couple, you know, things along the way in those years from the 40s to the 90s. 55, Vienna made him a full professor. 61, visiting professor at Harvard. His ideas are being cemented in the minds of those studying psychotherapy in the U.S. His academic career just continues to grow. And he lectured at over 200 universities and awarded... 29 honorary degrees. <laughs> wow. Through, or rather, Man's Search for Meaning was by far his best-known work, but during this time, he also published 39 other books during his lifetime. 1970, he's honored by his peers by when they create the Victor Frankl Institute. Among his academic work, Frankl worked with patients, still, even with all of that stuff, he's still working with patients. One of his methods was to ask the most depressed patients. He encountered a seemingly simple six-word question, why do you not commit suicide? Okay, pause. I'm just going to tell you when I, I talk to people uh, who are considering suicide, sometimes I go into the, the pros and cons. Why do it? What does this solve? Okay. What are the problems this would create? What are the reasons to not do it? And that usually gives a very clear picture. Frankel, though, from here, would discover what it was the patient actually found joy in. What made their life worth living? So by asking this question, why do you not commit suicide? In other words, what was the meaning at that moment in their life? And once that discovery was made, he could start helping them improve their mental health and move away from thoughts of suicide. Moving into the 20th century, as it progressed, Frankel shared his ideas in media. You just heard an interview I played. He began appearing on television, bringing them an entirely new audience. In one of his most famous television appearances, he expounded on his idea that in the search for life's meaning, one must have a balance, okay, of freedom and responsibility. Have you heard this? Have you been to a counselor? I heard this idea introduced from a life coach, freedom versus responsibility. During the discussion, he advocated for the United States to have a partner monument for the Statue of Liberty. The country should be bookended with the Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast, he argued. Did that ever happen? Do we have that? statue of responsibility here's what he says about freedom freedom is not the last word freedom is only part of the story and half of the truth freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon whose positive aspect 
is responsibleness. In fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by the Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Okay, responsibility very quickly. I, I, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to explain this perfectly, but let me see if I can recall. Freedom versus responsibility. Like, uh, th- those, those are two things we both crave, and those are both sometimes in consequence with each other. Uh, we, we have the need uh, to be responsible for others. I need to be responsible for my dogs, and, and I need the responsibleness of my work, but I also crave that freedom, and, and it's striking that, that, that correct balance. Um, gosh, he's amazing. So, to kind of wind his story down, or, or we're getting there, um, Frankel continued to share his message and teach the world about his theories of uh, psychoanalysis and uh, ev- everything else that he had kind of developed right up until his death in 1992. In one of Frankel's last interviews, he made an observation that even looking back decades later, he could still find value in his suffering at the concentration camps. As he saw it, this suffering gave him an invaluable perspective on what real trouble is, and it actually makes him more appreciative of the life he could live freely from 46 onward. He says, What I would have given then if I could have no, if, if I could have had no greater problem than I face today. He said 1995. Hmm. Wow. Okay, let's 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 look let's talk about suffering for a minute. When I was going through my anxiety, I thought, you know what, I've got it. It's gonna work out better for me because by going through this anxiety I am forced to grow and I will be better off than most people. You know what I learned? That's not true for me. What I find is that not everybody has to go through suffering to get the lessons that I now have gotten. I don't think you have to go through suffering to have perspective personally. However, and I said it last week, I believe, if since we have to have our dose of suffering in DPDR or panic attacks and anxiety and depression, we might as well take something away from it. I do buy the idea that we can extrapolate something from every experience good and bad hey what can i take away from this cool what's the message i'm going to take that with me and apply it to the next year and years of my life that's it frankel's legacy when he was in the concentration camps he lived out the idea that he later imparted into the world in this beautiful man's search for meaning book Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. Now, I agree, in case, yeah, in case you need validation from me here, I agree, it's, it, it makes sense, it's hard to do. It takes work, and it's not sexy, and it takes practice to be able to uh, shift our, our attitude and shift the way we perceive and see something. While he was in the concentration camps, Viktor Frankl opted to think of his wife, to think of his profession, to theorize about how he could use his experience with suffering to impact the lives of others. That's what's going through his mind while he's there. He stole paper from the camp offices, (laughs) love it, to jot down his ideas. And he knew that he had two reasons to make it out alive. Two reasons Viktor Frankl has to get out of this concentration camp. Love. Number one, love. And two, a responsibility to help people find meaning and avoid what he called the existential stress, existential stress of living without meaning. Why am I here? Okay, now, Wes here, some people believe that is given to us from a higher power. Some people, we all have our, okay, for me, I pick, okay, I pick. I pick what I care about. I choose my meaning, and I make it valuable every day. I have to pick. Now, how do we go about finding meaning? 
There's, there's assessments. What color is your parachute is a book I read. How do we come up with a career, our passion, plus also what we happen to be good at and what are our natural advantages? Okay, there, there, are, there are tools to pick for meaning. And, and what about love? What am I all about with love? I remember, uh, you know, in my 30s, early 30s, I said, I am not interested in dating someone else and, and having the same result. Who is Wes Murphy? And what is he all about as far as, do, am I interested in getting married? Am I interested in kids? Do I want to be single? Am I interested in a, a, a more progressive lifestyle? I had to sit down and figure all of those things out for myself. You know, I guess we all do, right? But I, I just, I remember going, what am I all about? And how do I go about finding that out? Okay, from the time, Frankel was a student. He was helping to save lives. Though he couldn't save the lives of his closest family, he was able to persevere through unimaginable horrors and spend the next five decades making a positive impact on the world. He could have given up. He could have died. He could have lived the rest of his life bitter from what he had gone through. No one could have blamed him. No, he didn't do that. Instead, his life has touched millions. He made it count. His book has been translated into 74 languages. And his, he's impacted generations. Here I am talking about him. And the, the, the field, the psychotherapist, I mean, he, 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 he upped the game in that world. It ends with Viktor Frankl, a life lived with meaning indeed. Beautiful. Okay. Okay, so if I go to uh, one of the reviews, and I'm going to scroll back down, has uh, some, some of their takeaways. And the gentleman says, look, this is just me. This is just my opinion. This is just what I took, all right? Um, this is from Freak underscore Redefined. <laughs> it's, it's one of the top reviews. Uh, 507 people found this helpful. And I'm not going to read the whole review. He just, just quickly, he says, look, the book review is based on my feelings during reading the book. It doesn't intend to hurt anyone's feelings. It's not meant to compare with any other reviewer's feelings. Okay, I'm here to kind of give my review. And he talks about, first, it's divided into three parts. This, and the book is. and But we've already covered that. So let's go down to what this reviewer feels are a few of the life-changing quotes. I have not read this yet. So let's read it together. Uh, no, he, from, he's got 11. I'm going to start with number 11. Number 11, no one has the right to do wrong, not even if wrong has been done to them. Beautiful. Yep, I don't get to use something that's been done to me as an excuse. We see that a lot right now, right? Like, this happened to me, so I get to do that. Or you... It's social media especially, like, you're not progressive, so therefore I get to beat you. I mean, it's crazy. Number 10, the body has fewer inhibitions than the mind. Darn it. I knew it would get me with a big word. Inhibition. I-N-H-I-B-I-T-I-O-N. A feeling that makes one's, one's self-conscious and unable to act in a relaxed and natural way. Self-conscious. The body has fewer self-consciousness than the mind. Okay. Number nine, a man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human who affectionately waits for him or to an unfinished work will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence, and he will be able to bear almost any how. If you know the why, you can bear the how. That's right. Wow. Wow. Okay. Number eight. There is no need to be ashamed of tears. For tears bore witness that a man had the greatest of courage, the courage to suffer. Don't be ashamed of tears. I was working out at the gym this morning, and I was playing Meatloaf. Uh, what's the song called? I would do anything for love. I don't know, man. It gets me. But that's not what he's talking about. Number seven, emotion, which is suffering. 
ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. Yeah, we got to get clarity. How do you get clarity? How? Okay, we've got to log our thoughts, right? We got to log those. We got to we've got to log them like if we were to to log what we eat and um, problem solving formats formats to get clarity. Socratic questioning. Those are tools a lot of counselors use. Number six, suffering is an uh, is a part of life. I can't say that word. Inirredactable. Suffering is an inirredactable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life can't be completed. Yeah, I don't get it. I, I mean, I don't get why sometimes we're caught off guard when... Um, when, when certain things happen, like, okay, without suffering and death, human life can't be complete. This is part of it. So maybe if I just have a grasp that suffering is part of this life, it won't affect me so much. Number five, the human being is completely and unavoid, unavoidably influenced by his surroundings. Absolutely. Our surroundings matter. Our surroundings do matter. So maybe it's worth our time to decide what we want to put, who and what we want to put around us. Again, that takes work. Number four, no man should judge unless he asks himself in absolute honesty whether in a similar situation he might not have done the same. That is a beautiful perspective. It's very easy to judge someone else, but I love trying and I'm better off. My anxiety is better by trying to put myself in their shoes and understand why they made that decision. I there were some people in my life very recently who made some decisions that were just mind-numbing to me. But I was able to look at it like through their perspective and then have compassion, which helps me, and it also helps them. I was able to see the situation differently, and I said, you know what? They don't have the tools right now. They really don't. They are responsible for some of this. They don't have the tools, and they've, they've... kind of been the victim of a bad idea. I was able to say that instead of my judgmental garbage, which hurts me and them. Number three, suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind. No matter where the suffering is great of little. Therefore, the size of human suffering is absolutely relative. Oh my goodness, I'm going to have to meditate on that one. No matter where the suffering is great or should be great or little, okay? Suffering completely fills the human soul and conscious mind, no matter whether the suffering is great or little. Ah, okay. Size is relative. So suffering is relative. If it's a huge or little, it can still occupy my mind. That's the way we're wired. Number two, there are things which must cause you to lose your reason or you have none to lose. Wow, there are things which must cause you to lose your reason. Oh, wow, okay. And going back to number three about the suffering and perspective, I remember I was working, oh, Lord, what's happened? Okay. Um, I remember I was working with a a band at one point in my life, and uh, the band had, the band had, 10,000 people singing along to the song, but there was one person who was not. And I remember that lead singer was cursing and really frustrated by who, who does that jerk think he is? And I thought, yeah, it's true. You know, you know, uh, his mind jumped to the, the one person as opposed to the 9,999. It was, it was incredible. And it was a lesson to me that, you know, with my mind, even if I had 10,000 people kind of going to the beat of my drum, I'm still going, my mind is still going to look for something that, that, that's not perfect. So I got to, I got to fix that. There, like no amount of success, uh, w- will, will fix the way my mind is, chooses to see things. Number one, for success, like happiness, can't be pursued. Wow, success can't be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. He's saying success 
and happiness are simply byproducts. We have to be dedicated to a greater cause or we have to commit to one. So he's saying a, a, a cause or a love. Dude, I love it. I love it. Yep. Good stuff. It is Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And it's all about finding meaning in our lives. I'm going to cut to another quote of Victor before we stop it. What's happening with that noise? Sorry. Okay. Dancing someone in his very uniqueness, and this means loving. Love is more than just sex. On the contrary, human sex is more than mere sex precisely to the extent to which it serves as the bodily incarnation, I may say, a mode of expression, the physical mode of expression of one's love, of a personal togetherness, of getting hold of another person in his very uniqueness and seizing the uniqueness of another person. You know, when you're dealing with somebody like Viktor Frankl, you can just put the mouse on any part of the video and it's going to be something amazing. And and here he is talking about love. And it it, it begs the question. I don't know if that's a proper... It, I'm now thinking of the question, how do I uh, connect with, uh, with love and, and the way he's talking about? How do I go about um, deciding uh, what... A, a powerful love for another uh, will look like. To me, it just takes some work. It's, I mean, to me, hearing that is the starting point. It's not like, oh, cool, I get it. Now my life's better. No, now, now I have to ask myself the question. I got to do the research and I got to make some decisions from there and I got to talk to some people about it. Well, I have to say, um, you all are awesome. I am I'm working every week toward... Uh, starting the group, the group support. That's kind of where my mind's headed. I want to get people together. I want to bring us together and provide some support. I've enjoyed talking with many of you, and by many, I mean a few, you know, but I got some peeps. I've enjoyed those of you who reach out, support at Anxiety Help with Wes. I see maybe a Facebook page so we can make it a little bit more informal and keep the conversation flowing, you know what I mean? But, uh, But I get busy and I get tired, so... Uh, and it's Saturday. How about this? It is Saturday and I've got the podcast up. Look at me. Anxiety Help with Wes. We out. <laughs>